Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Ruben Sanz Romero is on the show today to talk about his work at Veritas Restaurant. Ruben Sanz Romero from Veritas is on the show today. Hey, Ruben. Hello. Good afternoon. Very nice to see you. Well, it's a truly pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So why don't we fill in people, for people <coughs> maybe don't know you well, uh, you're originally from Spain. Yeah. And you grew up in the Roberto de Duero area? Yeah, exactly. That's um, where I grew up. That's where my family, most of my family lives. And um, yeah, that's where my roots also are. Um, I grew up up to where I was about 19 years old. Uh, then I moved to Barcelona when I did my studies. I went to a hotel school there. I did hotel business. Uh, hotel management school in Barcelona. Uh, but yeah, obviously I'm very connected with Rivera del Duero and it's uh, it's very important for me and in many different ways. So eventually you ended up leaving Spain and, and going to, to London. How did that come about? Well, so <clears throat> yeah, I finished school in Barcelona and um, at that point I, I was Quite, uh, it was clear for me that within the whole aspects that involve uh, the hotel and the restaurant industry, what I really wanted to focus on was wine. And I wanted to learn about wine in a global way. I wanna, I was intrigued about wine in 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 an, in the general sense of of of, uh, of the world. Um, be able to learn about what's going on not only in Spain, but, you know, um, in Australia, in America, in France, in Italy. And as you must know, if you go to Spain, as many of the European um, wine-growing countries, the wines that you drink and that you are exposed most are the local wines. I see. You go to France, and you know there are obviously an amazing wines in France, but they are uh, France-centric. You go to Italy, and there are obviously great exceptions to the rule. And the most of the wines that you find are Italian wines on the list, right? In Spain, what people drink are Spanish wines. You're like Unico again. Oh, <laughs> we have to drink Vega Sicilia every day, Mom. <laughs> uh, so. So yeah, I remember I, <clears throat> I the first book I bought about wine was when I was still in school, and uh, it was this uh, encyclopedia from uh, André Dominé. Oh, okay. Right. Um, and, you know, it's translated to Spanish, and I think it's a great introduction for those who are wanting to learn wine in a general way, you know, from wines from all over the world. And I was looking to it, it's like, wow, okay, I know really little, about 95% of the ones that are here. So that was what really made me move to London. And Because um, it's kind of more of a global market. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly I would say that it is the most international wine market in Europe. Mm -hmm. And um, so I say, well, you know, let's make it happen and uh, let's just see what London had to offer and um, study um, as much as I can and, and learn as much as I can. Yeah. So, so where did you end up working when you when you touched down in, in London? So <clears throat> I uh, worked first for um, a New Zealand chef called Peter Gordon. Okay. Who now has uh, a couple of different restaurants in, in London, the Providores and Copapa. And well, he has pr several projects going on in New Zealand and, and some others actually in England as well. Uh, he was... Uh, and he still is obviously considered to be one of the um, fathers of fusion food. And uh, certainly uh, his restaurant in London was very Australasian-centric in terms of the selections of wines, which, you know, for me, it was very interesting. Just, you know, I never tasted a New Zealand wine before in my life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the same with uh, Australian wines and, and so forth. So... Um, so that was the that was the the first place I work. Uh, at the time, I I also joined the the Wine and Spirits Education Trust School. Oh yeah, yeah, WSET mm -hmm, in London. So I just immerse myself to the courses that you know um, they impart. I heard if you're going to take those courses, London's the good place to take it because they really have it centered there, and that's. It's great. I mean, I start my courses there in London, and then I actually continue the courses here in New York through the International Wine Center. Did you find a difference? Um, I mean, the courses are the same, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I think in New York we are really lucky and blessed to have a tremendous array of professionals in the wine world. Yeah. Um, you know, from, uh, and um, a lot of them impart classes in the International Wine Center. And oh, okay. It, and it's run from... Maria with Mulligan, which is an you know master of wine and one of the um, one of the greatest personalities I think I have uh, met. Um, She's very nice mm -hmm, uh, we, within the business. So even uh, the dummies like me. <laughs> you know, I ended up giving, um, believe it or not, uh, um, I have. Uh, um, I have bought for some friends that book as a yeah, person for yeah. friends that hey, it's important. Yeah, you got to start somewhere. Uh -huh. you know? No, very little about wine, and um, I think it have worked very well. So yeah, in London the difference is like there is um, uh, there is a bigger platform in sense. You go to the um, to the to the school and 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 they have. Um, um, Library. Um, and they do. Um, they are connected with um, a lot of events that are happening in in non in London, but in in Europe, and and obviously it's rooted very deep within the the um, the wine um, um, scene in in Europe and in London. So yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great school to to start. But you know, here the one in New York, I I, I was very happy to encounter and to continue my studies. Yeah. So you're you're working at Provador. Mm -hmm. You're taking some classes on the WSET. And what kind of happened next after that? Well, um, so um, yeah, uh, the time the fact that I was looking for an assistant sommelier. Oh, the Heston Blumenthal restaurant. Yeah, and um, so I was uh, looking enough, lucky enough to um, work uh, to move there. Then and um, and work as an assistant. Um, what was that like? Uh, fascinating. Yeah, uh, truly fascinating. Um, I mean, and a unique restaurant in many different ways. You know, it was uh, an interesting time. Um, that was two thousand four. So it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> Looking back to the time. What was? I mean, what was the reputation of the Fat Duck at that time? I know now it's really. Well known was it known back then or yes well uh, the restaurant uh, soon before got its third Michelin star right before you got there mm -hmm. and then just the same that same year uh, the the restaurant was uh, nominated as it first on the list that uh, San Pellegrino does every year with the best restaurants in the world. Oh, okay, the San Pellegrino. Uh huh. So the fact that that year in two thousand four was in first place. Oh, amazing! 
Yeah. Ah, I remember that year. That's right. That's right. <clears throat> so um, obviously, a lot of uh, eyes and a lot of attention were turned into the restaurant already from the world. Yeah, already it really was. You know, and uh, amazing things were happening there. Um, uh, certainly, Heston Blumenthal is a visionary in many different ways. It's a very unique chef um, that look at um, food and the way you dine in um, in in a from a unique perspective. What what was he like in person? What was his style? Very humble, very close to people. Everybody who were there. Um, he was there every single day on the pass yeah. for lunch and dinner and very relaxed and very calm in many different ways. He has a, 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 a yeah, I, a, he was always very well um, um, composed, composed, yeah, during, during the entire service and, and a very focused and at the same time, <clears throat> Yeah, I'm very close to the rest of to everybody in the staff. So I was. Um, was it a big place? I've never been there. Is it like big staff or? Um, I know, well, at the time, we were, for instance, um, four people in the sommelier team. That's pretty big. Uh, for forty-six six seats. Forty-six seats. Mm-hmm. So basically, you're, there's maybe three people on the floor given night, or two people on the floor, depending on. Uh, three and four depends the night. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So coverage to like one sommelier per eleven guests. <laughs> sort of. As we were bro- uh, breaking the room, it was, um, the head sommelier was floating through the room. Yeah. Then there was two sommeliers who we sort of, they sort of split the room mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, half. And then was me who was just, you know, running around. Oh, I see. Assist, so you were helping. Assisting everybody. You like know? a commie, they call I, I, yeah. I was a commie, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So you kind of go get things, kind of set up the service. Yeah, uh, the canteen, all the wines, while the sommeliers were talking to the tables, uh, doing the, you know, I was allowed to do the pairings as well and doing the service. But I was yes, just uh, running from nine o'clock in the morning till one o'clock <laughs> in a night, yeah, pretty much during, yeah. Was it a big wine destination? People were opening up bottles? Yeah, well, uh, the wine list was great. Um, I have to say, quite broad, uh, touching, uh, um, you know, wine regions from all over the world. Uh, very well selected wines and great bottles were open. As also, we had at the time, which, you know, um, made me uh, very happy. The, larger selection of sherries in England. So, oh, you did? Yeah. Which so, is, you know, you're from Spain. And yeah. And uh, I must say, um, one of the th- one of the things I learned when I was in London was about sherry. Because <laughs> it's a big market for historically. Huge. And um, believe it or not, it's still up to today. Um, in Spain, sherry... It is not as well known as you will expect it. In its own country. In its own country. You have to think as well, as we were saying before, that in Spain, what you drink are Spanish wines. Yeah. Well, it can, it can get more finicky than that. Meaning, if you are in Rivera del Duero, what you drink is Rivera del Duero. Yeah. Not there to, don't there to order a bottle of Rioja. They will kick your ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and uh, you will not be well-received anymore. Well, you, you know? can't go to Charlestown and say you're from the North End either. You know what I mean? It <laughs> doesn't work very well. So, unfortunately, unfortunately, the wines of Jerez still remain a mystery for <clears throat> the majority of the consumers and even wine enthusiasts in Spain. Because sherry is made in the south of Spain and Roberto Duero is fairly far north near mm-hmm. more of the population center. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, um, and uh, you know, in the gastronomy, I think it's, a slightly, it's also different. Mm-hmm. And, um, and um, A little more traditional in the south, maybe? Yeah, more seafood, mm-hmm. you know. 
for instance. Um, and um, certain cultural um, um, manifestations are obviously very similar. Like, you know, we're going before lunch and dinner to have, you know, some glasses of wine to the bars. You know, that's common in Spain everywhere. But in Jerez or in Andalusia, you, you, you're probably going to end up having a manzanilla or a fino and a montillado. Um, in Rivera del Duero, or you will have uh, Vino Joven from mm -hmm. Rivera, or in Rioja you will have, you know, uh, carbonic um, uh, maceration uh, Joven, you know, style, very fresh and crisp, so you can have two or three glasses and you still can come back home and be able to, you know, have lunch and continue your day. So, so yeah, I mean, um, the wines that you consume are very specific to the, to the area. So in a way, London really gave you a lot of exposure, but at the same time, they were they were doing a lot of sharing. They probably looked to you for some firsthand on that a little bit. Well, um, well, not quite. When I arrived, uh, I mean, the wine list was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I really, you know, didn't have much to say. Mm -hmm. The collection of sherry's were just, you know, great. <laughs> so I actually learned a lot myself. I didn't know as much, really. I know very little about sherry when I went to London, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. I have done some tastings in Spain, uh, study, you know, broad theory about, you know, how sherry is made and what is sherry about. But um, I really wasn't exposed to, you know, the, the great uh, sherries in Spain. It's just, uh, they are hard to find, honestly. Yeah. So, Eventually, you ended up leaving the Fat Duck and trying for a new horizon. Uh, what happened uh, to make you make your mind up? Well, um, a, uh, well, a, a couple of things I think happened. Then um, things in in life, generally speaking, normally happen for several reasons, right? <laughs> and um, um, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife finished her studies in London and uh, came to New York to do an internship. Um, and the internship was, you know, for first six months, but it could get longer. And, you know, I was kind of, all right, <clears throat> we can do a couple of things here. I can um, stay in London um, and, you know, <laughs> do my thing. Or, you know, I can continue my um, career with um, the person who I love and be able to work it out together um, in a way that, you know, we're both going to be quite happy. And that was one possibility. Then I work in London with um, a friend of mine now who uh, is the secretary chef at uh, Abroco Hospitality Group. Oh, okay. Ralph Armory, who at the time was just open in public. Got it. And he told me, well, dude, just let you know, if you want to come to New York, we can help you out. Did you know him from the, the Gordon days, from the Provador set? Exactly. The New Zealand guys? Exactly. So, you know, uh, you know, it's quite, it's it's a lot of uh, bureaucracy that you have to get together to in order to come and work in the United States if you come, if you are not American, right? All paperwork and it's quite tedious and fairly complicated. And expensive. Exactly. So he pretty much told me, don't worry too much about this. We take about, you, we want to take care about all this stuff. You can come, you work with me, it's going to be fine. And I say, well, you know, this is a pretty good opportunity to also continue my career and continue my process of learning about wine in a different market, in a different city, that possibly it is the greatest of all also when it comes up to wine. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, you know, let's let's just make it hey, happen. Let's do it. Uh-huh. And, um, and certainly I came to New York and I... And I realized that um, in New York, I believe, up to this point, obviously, um, I, I think it's the greatest um, a wine city in the world. <laughs> and it's just, uh, it's really extraordinary in so many different ways. Uh, it's just incredible. So, And I remember Public opened, and then they did the, like, the Monday room, which mm -hmm. was like a wine 
thing. Mm-hmm. Were you were you part of that? Yeah. So we put that together. Uh, the money room was a very interesting, uh, f- very fun project. A uh, um, library looking wine bar where we always have around 75 wines available by the glass that I was changing constantly. And yeah, I mean, at the time, it was really fun. We, we were able to pour Auvergnois by the glass and Clos Royale by the glass Boy. and all these great wines. Yeah. And today, they're almost impossible that's, to yeah, get. Yeah, it's not happening anymore. <laughs> yes. But I'm, it was an inventive thing, and you know, it looked cool. I remember like they had the mailboxes for the wine mm-hmm. club, and you'd put a different bottle in there every month, yes. uh, like in old yeah. postal boxes yeah, 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 in yeah, the yeah. restaurant. Exactly, because the whole concept of public, in terms of visually speaking, it goes around public spaces, uh-huh, uh-huh. libraries, oh, okay. offices, all the kind of stuff. So, yeah, that was a way of integrate, conceptually speaking, um, that into the, the the visuals of 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 the restaurant. Did you ever, like, do, like, large format bottles and put, like, a little delivery notice in the mailbox and be like, come pick up your Magnum at the... No, I'm just kidding. Well, I, well we actually, yeah, I mean, the, how it works, it still works today. Uh, um, a bottle is selected every month, and um, you know, with your bottle of wine, you, you can come and drink it in the restaurant. There is a note about the wine, the producer, and some notes as well from you know, but the rim, rim in terms of food pairing and all of that. That um, Brad um, adds. Oh, he well. does. Oh, yeah. I didn't know it was that an extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, we opened the the Monday room. <clears throat> we also opened together a double crown. Oh, sure. Like um, down in the Bowery. Exactly. And so it was a it was a dynamic time, you know. Uh it was it was it was a great time. Uh where I had the opportunity to um, you know, keep going with my studies and and uh and learning learning a lot, which is all at the end where counts, honestly. And this was kind of like your first time ever to New York, like this period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and uh, you're rolling around town. And what were some of the sights and sounds back then? I mean, what really what made an impression? Oh, um, some. I mean, so so many. I mean, so so many places. I would say, um, you know, and Nolita at the time it was kind of coming together. Was you know, and the Lower East Side was um, pretty fascinating. Um, a lot of um, cool things from, you know, calories to restaurants to pop-up, whatever you want to call it, where it occurring. So that was really great. I first moved to New York. I live in Bushwick. Oh, okay. So I came straight to Bushwick. Um, so um, I we were really lucky. We were able to sublet um, a loft there, my wife and I. Um, and um, it was huge. <laughs> you know, you come to New York. We were living across the street from a concrete factory. Yeah. So it's a completely um, industrial setting. Yeah. So um, Bushwick at the time was anything in there. It was like Boar's Head and the concrete factory. Yeah, really. Uh, Rivera's wasn't there, and like nothing was there. Yeah. Um, you know, it was kind of sketchy. You sure. know, I was coming to work late at night every day, and it's like, holy shit, <laughs> you know. Um, Hold on to your wallet. Uh-huh. But um, so, but you could start to see how the the name the neighborhood was um, vibrant in many different ways. You mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. And and I remember in the same floor where we were living, there was a dance company rehearsing. Um, there were bands uh, rehearsing around the buildings and the neighborhood. There was uh, so many creatives around. It was a, a, a living, um, a very um, uh, living full of energy uh, neighborhood, you know. And that's really, I, I loved it. And then we moved to we moved to Williamsburg. We got closer to this to the city. Um, and uh, we were also very lucky to get a, a, a good place there. And Williamsburg is been to me a, a place that I felt um, very comfortable uh, all the time, and where I have spent most of my time as well. Normally, when I'm when I'm off, <laughs> I 
tend to stay in Brooklyn. I rarely come to um, Manhattan. And uh, I pretty much find in Brooklyn everything I need. Yeah. It's uh, developed up that way. Yeah. It's getting a little bit out of hand, if I have to be honest, right now. Because <laughs> uh, I remember when the hurricane happened and you couldn't come to Manhattan, you were like, yeah, what's there again? I can't remember. I'm yeah. just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it got a little bit difficult for a few days, but nothing really obviously important. Um, and then, you know, fascinating for, for about <clears throat> wine stores, everything that has to do with wine, wine tastings, um, restaurants, and bars, in the sense, gastronomically speaking, New York was like, wow. And what was the difference amongst the sommeliers between Spain, London, and New York? I mean, who? what was the kind of person that was attracted to wine in those different areas? Well, <clears throat> I think, well, the persons, I, at the end, I think we are all quite similar in a certain way that we come down to one very crucial and vital point, which is the share and the passion for what we love and the eagerness to learn. And that's something that is universal and that unifies all of us together. Um, in terms where I... What I found most different here in New York is the broad spectrum of personalities. Behind. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. In, uh, from a place of origin to also um, characters, mm-hmm. um, personas, and visionaries. I think New York really grabs them all in certain ways. It grabs an, an incredible amount of fascinating figures behind um, um, the world of wine and as sommeliers. I mean, look at you. You know? I have three personalities all at once. I know. It's fascinating. Um, You're like, um, how can this guy have so many different personalities? I'm just, I'm just and, you know, putting together this incredible idea. Oh, uh, this? Yeah. yeah. Well, whatever. And, and things like that. So anyway. So you you ended up working for for Avroco and kind of a corporate thing, mm-hmm. and then you you roll uh, somehow you you met up with Tim Kopeck. What happened? Well, I I finishing up at the Avroco restaurant group, and uh, because I wanted to take some time off and going back to Europe to learn. Um, more on hands-on on viticulture and enology, more specifically. Oh, okay, okay. Get back to the vines. Yeah. Because there's not so many around New York. Correct. And that's at the end where, obviously, everything starts. Where it all starts. And um, it is crucial. And, yes, I do miss them <laughs> in many ways. You know, I grew up surrounded them, by them. So, um, so I, t- I took time off and I... Um, I was lucky enough to work for a few months at um, Domaine Saint Humbrech in Alsace. Oh, okay, with Olivier. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, that's exactly. amazing, incredible, in many ways, life-changing experience. He's uh, like really intelligent. Well, he's, okay. uh, he's well, yes, and probably one of the, if not the, so one of the greatest minds behind wine that I ever met in my life. I had that same impression. Yeah. I mean, I didn't always necessarily agree, but I it was well thought out, like really well thought out. Like what he had to say with green harvesting, he was the first person I ever knew to really talk about it at that level of depth, about what it would do in successive seasons and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that any easy, I mean, any issue that you want to discuss with him that relates particularly viticulture or enology, uh, you will find an encyclopedic knowledge behind, and it will pretty much tell you everything else more that you can even take at once. And he's one of the few people that makes wine that also became a master of wine. He was, yes, he was the first master of wine in France back in 1989, very young at the time. And he took over the domain in 1993 from his father, Leonard, although Leonard has been involved and is still being involved on, you know, on the day by day. But, you know, now it's since that day, uh, I believe was more or less around that year when Olivier took over. And, and I must say, you know, I think some of his wines are the most fascinating white wines in the world. 
So what did you pick up while you were there? What was that experience like? Well, uh, I did a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I arrived there in, uh, I think it was the end of June, and I was I left at the end of October. So I had to do um, the vineyard work that is required through that part of the season. Um, uh, then I did Missing Botay for the 2008 vintage, some of them, and the, the latest Missing Botay for the latest wines. But bottling the wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, working during harvest, I was mostly in the cellar, receiving the grapes, well, preparing the presses, uh, doing rackings, doing all sort of... The doing, functional stuff. Yeah. The cl- actual how wine is made stuff. Yeah. Cleaning the foudre, which is, oh my God, tough job to do. And then you really realize why a lot of people are using a stainless steel and on foudres. Yeah, exactly. Right. And leaving behind what they wanted to tell you. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Crawling into those things cannot be fun. Because it is uh, really hard to maintain a uh, labor-intensive expensive and um, yeah it's it's just uh multiplies the the labor that you have to put into it especially in, in that family because they're all huge like olivier is a tall man it must be tough to like crawl into a food drawer for him oh my god you have you see the doors so the food yeah. drawer, right you yeah. you get you have to get into it it took me a week to learn how to get in like yes. the acrobatic technique of getting in yeah and to be able to be inside of the food drawer and be there for you know an hour use uh, cleaning the tartrates, they were obviously crystallized and hard into the wood, and with an ox, you know, shaving the tartrates. It's really hot in there, you know, as you can imagine, it's a tiny space, and you are there like sweating. Uh, it's almost like, you know, 90, you know, 90 degrees inside. And I didn't it, know it was that warm. It gets really warm in there, yeah. Of course, because, you know, you are... You are working out, and it's also during the warm season that you're probably doing this. Yeah, well, this, yeah, but the cellar is is cool mm-hmm. down anyway. But you know, inside it gets quite warm, and sometimes you you are two people doing it, so it gets even warmer. Hmm. Amazing. I'd never, uh, yeah, I've never done it. So, but I look at those spaces sometimes, and I'm like, do you ever see that scene in Lethal Weapon where Mel Gibson like dislocates his shoulder, and then later he's trying to get out of the like the handcuffs and he dislocates his shoulder on purpose so he can slip out of him and stuff. I always thought like, that's what you'd have to do. You'd have right. to like, like, you know, somehow like purposely dislocate your shoulder to get into a food draw, you know? Yeah. 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 I can't get that way. So did you get a chance to like, uh, get around Europe a little bit during that trip and see some other places in France? Or? Yeah. 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 Well, I, in France, I, I, I travel as much as I could. So um, I went to Burgundy several times. Because you were afraid they were going to ask you to clean out the food drawer if you stuck around the winery. They're like, right. <laughs> they're like hey, guys, I'm not available today. Sorry. You know? Well, I mean, I was, I was, um, I was an, an employee. I was working there. Yeah, so I have to yeah. be there from Monday to Friday. So, but Saturday and Sunday is your time. Exactly. I have to take the most out of Saturdays for those domains that are able to see you during Saturdays. And so, yeah. Yeah, because... Catholic country, there's probably not a lot of people want to chill with you on the weekend, right? No. Yeah. So, um, obviously, I travel a lot through uh, Alsace because I was normally f- finishing up uh, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, just start very early in the vineyard, 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock even, um, 7 o'clock. And then, so after work, I was, you know, I would travel through Alsace. Olivier was kind enough to uh, uh, lend me a... Uh, 20 years old, see it. <laughs> nice. Well, at least you know it's not yeah. going to get stolen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, you know, was not going to attract a lot of attention from the cops. Luckily enough, didn't, didn't, the car didn't break in the middle of the slope somewhere in Alsace. So right. I, was, I was very lucky on that. And uh, so I was just going and visit producers in Alsace on the regular basis. That, yeah. And then, obviously, the Jura was close enough. So um, I, I got into the Jura and Burgundy and then... I and then I traveled through obviously pretty much all the east of France, the Roussillon, the Rhone, um, Languedoc, um, because I also obviously took some time off, some to time. Um, and then I was that year as well in Italy and Germany, Spain. I was um, I, I was traveling as much as I could to visit as many people as as I was able to. 
But at some point, you you made the trek back to America. So yeah, I mean, it was clear to me that uh, that was just a, a, a period of time that I want to dedicate it to uh, focus on that and then come back to um, to New York. And as uh, many things in life, you know, if things happen uh, while you are in um, at the right time in the right spot. And when I came back uh, soon later, um, Tim Kopek was looking for a sommelier at Veritas. Cause, oh, because it wasn't that often that he was looking for people, but Patrick and Yoshi had left. At the time, yes, Patrick and, Lossi and Yoshi left. So um, there were Kelly and Matt working at the time, and Matt was leaving, so they needed a replacement. Because for a long time, they didn't hire anybody new for no. long, long, long time. No. So that was kind of pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those opportunities that doesn't really come that often. So what was it like meeting Tim for the first time? Uh, well, so, you know, obviously, uh, it was very special. And you are in front of one of the, you know, uh, most uh, renowned sommeliers, in, not only in the city, but, you know, in the world. In, yeah, in America. Um, with to, such a broad experience behind. And um, it was great. Uh, obviously, things turned out well. Did, uh, did he tell you if you want to succeed in this business, you're going to have to grow your hair out a little bit? Or? Uh, it's like, look at me. Right. It's a success. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he, certainly, he certainly managed to do very well. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but I remember the first day that um, I went to... Um, I went to, to Veritas to train, right? And, you know, it was the first time that I, you know, that I, I was working with, uh, well, working, I was pretty much just watching, right? Just having a feeling of the room and see whether that might be a good fit for you and, you know, the, the usual stuff. And I remember, you know, Tim was there and um, they have this, um, this um, special table down with Alan Meadows and a group of collectors. Oh, really? Yeah. That was my first day. So they they probably drank pretty good. Well, you know, I mean, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I remember thinking like, wow, yeah, this is something else. Because they had all those burgundies at that moment, like the the consignment had come in and there was some amazing like Claire Dow and stuff. Well, I mean, it was everything when I started working there. I mean, yeah. I remember that first day, you know, they started with a bottle of uh, early 20th century champagne. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then having, you know, DRCs back to the 30s and, you know, uh, Rumiere back to the 50s and, well, things that obviously... Just like every day. Yeah. yeah. Rumiere back to the 50s, sure. Um, you know, stuff that 99% of the people doesn't really see often. Ever in their entire life. Right. And yeah. you go there, you walk in on the first day, mm -hmm. you see an array of wines that you have, you know, hardly has seen. Right. And wines that, you know, you read about that. <laughs> so how long did it take you to say like, yes, I think I'd like to work here? <laughs> well, obviously, I, 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 I certainly... I mean, that was more for them to say, you know, yes, okay, come on board. Uh, obviously, I was, uh, I was on board, you know, since the first moment. So eventually, Tim kind of took a role more behind the scenes and did some some more like brokering and consulting, and mm -hmm. was less at the restaurant. Yeah, and and then you kind of progressed along to take up the head position. Is that how it worked? Or? Yeah, 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 pretty much. And yeah. what was that like taking on that mantle? Was that I mean, outside of Avroco, was that the first time you'd really kind of been in charge of a program? Yeah. Wow, yeah. amazing. Yeah. And you, a lot of it's consignment. So how how did that all flow down? I mean, what was it like? Well, Veritas, and that's what, you know, um, a lot of people perhaps doesn't really know. You know, they know that, okay, you have this big wine list, you know, this huge wine program. And, you know, people think, wow, you know, you, you might be... Um, spending all this time buying wine, and you you might need so much wine, but the reality is that Veritas it is found on the collection of a private collector, Mr. Parker Smith. Oh, sure, yeah, Park, yeah. Who and the majority of the wines that we have at Veritas come straight from his collection. 
So it's more, of course, you have to fit the ca- fill the gaps, mm-hmm. and you know you obviously have your input and you bring wines that you think that the restaurant needs, and obviously wines that that you also have certain affinity for and you wanna present to your guests because you know that they are also you know they, they might like it and. And because and, uh, Park needed. has the things that he really likes and that he's really strong in. Well, yes, uh, of course, but I mean, Park has an incredible collection. Mm-hmm. Um, Park used to give you an idea. He's been collecting wines for you know more than fifty years. Wow! So um, you can imagine what he what he has. Um, he he has a collection that. It's over 175,000 bottles. I didn't know it was that big. Yeah. I mean, I guess it must be because the Veritas list is huge. But. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, obviously, he, I mean, you have to think that he's somebody who has tried everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He has drink and owned the greatest wines in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Those wines that have made history. Wines that are going to be remembered forever. And so he's a very uh, exposed and very well and very knowledgeable um, wine person, obviously. And um, but yeah, he has his sweet spots, and there are certain areas that, up to today, he um, it is um, uh, exploring like the day one, you know, which. Um, in one of them, and I think most notoriously is Chateau of the Pap at this point. He likes the Chateau Neuf. That's the one that he drinks every, every day, certainly. And that's, he probably had, I would say, one of the largest, if not the largest, private collection of Chateau of the Pap. And his passion and his um, love for the wines and the region and the people there has been so extraordinary that even the town of Chateau of the Pap has um, named him honorary mayor of Chateau of the Pap. He's an honorary mayor of the town. Wow. So uh, I guess it's hard to make Pope down there, though. So that, that's probably <laughs> as high as it goes. You know, right. They probably don't name new Popes, I guess. Hey, look, um, so, I mean, has he said certain things to you that really kind of been like, wow, I never thought about that that way. I mean, you, you talk to the guy a lot. He's just... Huge collector has had a tremendous experience about wine. I mean, what are some of the stories he shared with you? Um, oh well, so many. I don't know where to begin. Honestly, um, you can uh, start with the gossip. You know, <laughs> I mean, you have to think that. Yeah, a park is 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 um, it's, uh, certainly um, close and connected. To, with the day by day of the restaurant, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, and particularly the sommeliers, we we have um, um, a close contact. So relation. you talk to him all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, he's um, want to always hear our opinions, how we can make things better, what you know, think about this, about that. Um. I mean, one of the one of the things that I always find very interesting that he speak about that is how he got into wine. How is that? You know, he he was um, a beer drinker. Sure. Back in the fifties, okay, and he was just stopping at this um, um, uh, deli or liquor store, and he will get you know at the end of the day a beer or, or two, and just you know. And enjoy them and drink them. And apparently, <clears throat> one day, there were no there were no beers left in the place. And the guy at the counter suggests to him a bottle of Beaujolais. Oh yeah, yeah. That's how it all started. <laughs> yeah, because he'd already drunk so much beer the previous week that they didn't have any left for him. They're like, Mister Park, you've been here five <laughs> days. Out of five days, we don't have any more beer. Well, you know, ended up the person at the counter suggesting to him a bottle of Beaujolais. And um, he, I think it was that, I'm not obviously, not for sure, but I believe it was one of his first encounters with wine. Mm-hmm. 
if not the first. Well, I mean, it wasn't so common for Americans to, mm -hmm. to drink French red wine at the time. Right. So um, he had um, that click back in that time, in the mid-50s, I think it was. Say, wow, this is actually something, you know, good. I like this. And from that moment, he really started to feel um, interested about wine. And uh, already in the 70s, he was a prominent collector. What are some of the things that have made that click for you? I, I see you, you post really well done, obviously very heartfelt Instagram pictures that are kind of like artistic collages. <laughs> or, no, I'm serious. You like in, juxtapositions that have a very... Um, very unique sensibility to the way that you style things visually. Um, so clearly some wines must have been worth the effort to do that. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that really stood out for you where you've really been like, whoa, I didn't know that that was necessarily possible? Oh, well, you know, um, I mean, I have to say I'm spoiled. Uh -huh. Okay. I mean, certainly um, I, I'm, I'm aware that I hope I hope it doesn't happen this way, but I think most likely it's going to happen that in this particular way. The day I leave Veritas, I don't gonna be exposed to tasting the caliber of wines that I've been exposed during this tenure of time mm. on a regular basis. Because right now you're like Grand Cru from a bad vintage. Oh, you know what I mean? You're like, what do you mean it's not Grand Cru? Well, um, I mean, it, it's it's very you know it, it it's it's very it's very unique setting. Um, I you feel sometimes that you are um, a head creator, you know, at the Met, mm -hmm. for instance, you know. Well, some of the things are approaching those prices, right? I mean, you know, things are valuable and rare, and and that's what I think. Um, part of a very important part of our role as sommeliers at Veritas, it is um, take care and curate with the maximum sensibility we could, we can and transmit that to our guests of the um, collection that we are honored and lucky to work with, right? Um, it's like, you know, working with you know with cl classic pieces of art that's what they are at the end of the day in certain ways you know certain wines so they are qu quite it's it's a quite extensive list of wines that have really touched me deeply mm -hmm. um for different reasons um and there are certainly out there still wines that remain a mystery to me and that um and that I um, hope to unveil those mysteries sometimes and, and be able to, to understand those uh, extraordinary, unique wines, you know. Well, you brought something a little, uh, little different today to try. Uh, what did you have there? Yes, I have. Uh, I brought, um, used to break the ice, um, what, uh, a, a wine from Jerez. Oh, okay. Yeah, kind of back to where we were talking about before. Exactly, and um, I was uh, during the Sherry Fest with uh, Don Javier Hidalgo, from, and he was telling me a very interesting story that I, I wasn't aware of, right? And <clears throat> he, um, he mentioned to me, he's a jockey, so he rides horses, and he does championships, um, um, jumping horse, and, you know, he's probably late 50s, and still does it. Um, and, you know, he feels a bit more intimidated sometimes to take the horse and go through a course, right? And he told me, you know, Ruben, some, what, I, what I do always these days, actually, when I, before I jump, in, into the, uh, jump into the horse, I always have with me a little flask of uh, Oloroso. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And I take it to the championships. And um, I just, you know, I get a little bit of Oloroso before I jump into the horse. And then the ride is much easier. <laughs> and um, he mentioned to me, like, and he called that the sherry, it used to be called 
the Dutch courage. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Because, you know, back in the day, sherry was sent in large quantities to different armies around Europe. Oh, okay, okay. French, British, they were fighting each other, drinking the same sherry in the different bands, you know? Yeah. They're drinking the same sherry. I mean, Bodegas Hidalgo, in fact, they have a, a sherry line called Wellington. They were sending to the British and a sherry line called Napoleon. They were sharing, sending to the French. So they were sh- drinking the same wine and they were fighting ones against the others. And so Sherry was called the Dutch Courage because obviously Sherry was given in a in, in fairly good amount of quantities to the troops used to, you know. Because um, I think the Dutch are more associated with pot these days in terms of uh, what sh- they might be. Uh, I sh- sure, I, I don't know whether they, you know, <laughs> they will fight very Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's a different kind of battle. <laughs> so Give me those chips, bro! <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this is a Palo Cortado from, uh, no Hidalgo La Gitana, but from Emilio Hidalgo, um, a house based in Jerez de la Frontera. is Marques de Rodil. And it's a fascinating Palo Cortado to me because, um, yeah, from, I think it's an extraordinary Palo Cortado driven by such a beautiful line of um, delicacy and... A Palo Cortado that maintains so vibrantly and so in a such a pure way its um, a, a fino character, and um, it, it's used a wine with a tremendous filigree. Uh, I I'm love uh, this wine to have on as we have it here on its own. Um, and, you know, at that time of the day, I think it's the best thing to have. It's got a lot of fall flavor in it, too. You know what mm. I mean? That real desiccated leaf. I, it's just curious. It's so complex, but uh, and it's so delicate. It so also has such a tremendous length in the palate, and it's, the finish is long. It is um, just um, a truly, truly, truly lovely um it's just wonderful I found it this way I hope you do too <laughs> Ruben thank you so much for sharing it with me oh no please no it's uh, this is what is wine is for no Ruben Sands Romero from Veritas restaurant in Manhattan thanks for being here today oh thank you all drink to that is hosted and produced by myself Levy Dalton Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.